Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women. My name is Jen Grimmett, and with us today is Dr. Buffy Longmere Avital, Associate Professor of Psychology and Coordinator of African and African American Studies at Elon University, speaking on the topic of historical trauma. So welcome, Buffy. Thank you for having me. (laughs) To help our audience get a better sense of who you are, could you share a little bit about, um, you know, the work that you do, your background, what brings you to the table today to talk about this topic? Absolutely. So um, my background is in applied developmental psychology. And I kind of say, if you look at my bio, I think I say I kind of straddle the world of public health uh, and uh, community psychology uh, with kind of everything I do coming from this kind of critical conscious framework Mm -hmm. uh, with the understanding that the experience of race, particularly race in the U.S., is um, paramount to our understanding the experience um, of health disparities, educational disparities, uh, how we frame uh, discussions around Mm -hmm. well-being. I was trained in a developmental psych program, a psychosocial development uh, program. So that meant that a lot of my focus was on identity development. Uh, Initially, my focus was on education disparities. And when I was working in schools, running an after school, um, doing research, I just kind of came to the conclusion that before we start focusing in on kind of the academic outcomes, we really need to be thinking about the mental health of students Mm -hmm. more Um, and kind of what is in the background that we're not thinking about just your general health and well-being needs to be brought um, more forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that aligning with my own experience, uh, just being a woman of color, a black woman, uh, initially in a program where I was the only student of color. And then as the years went by, that changed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But thinking about how my experience of being a woman of color, being um, one of the younger students, certainly impacted the the opportunities that I had, the mentoring that I got, um, the stress, ultimately, Mm -hmm. that I faced. Uh, And then that kind of continues on as I go through academia. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I go into a postdoc, as I go into a, an assistant professorship and now into an associate professorship, um, always being mindful of the fact that I like to say that I'm existing in this world in the package that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, but then recognizing that how I'm existing, the experiences that I'm having are related to this larger community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a shared experience. Uh, And then I think kind of from a personal space, a really personal space, so not just kind of that um, professional space, but that personal space, um, I am raised entirely by dynamic black women. Mm -hmm. uh, And I owe who I am to dynamic black women. And so I study black women because when I was going through school, I didn't see myself, uh, and I didn't understand why that was. Or I saw myself through the gaze of someone else Mm -hmm. um, and not um, through the actual person that embodied the lived experiences that I had and the lived experiences that um, my mother, my sister, my grandmother, my aunts had all of these kind of 
aunties and 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 just grandmothers and special people that um, kind of blessed my life. Uh, and I think the reason why I also gravitated towards health um, is that I've always been aware of the health struggles that women in my family have faced. And through it all, they've persevered. But I've wondered if that push through it all exasperates mm-hmm. their health um, and, and well-being. Um, and I think about, there's kind of this, I remember having this moment in my health psychology class, one of the first years I taught it here at Elon, and we were talking about rates of cancer and we're talking about rates of cancer among black women, uh, which is not talked about, but should be talked about Mm -hmm. because typically that those types of cancers are much more aggressive and, um, have higher rates of, um, mortality. Um, and all of a sudden, I I made this connection to the to the fact that my mother lost her mother uh, when she was just in her early forties, and my grandmother was in her mid sixties mm-hmm. or so. And I remember uh, that it was in March because it was always around my birthday. And my mom got this call that my grandmother, who'd been struggling with cancer, uh, cervical cancer really was not going to make it. And Mm -hmm. so we were in Massachusetts at the time in Cambridge where I grew up. And so my mom packed my sister and I on the bus and we made this trek on the Greyhound to New York City. We're used to doing this all the time. Uh, And I knew it was serious because my mother was incredibly overprotective, but she, my sister was old enough where she said, you're going to stay in the cab and you're going to take your little sister to our grandparents, um, uh, apartment on mm-hmm. the Lower East Side and she was going to let us out and she was going to go into the hospital. And we got to the hospital and I just have this image of these strong legs of my mother sprinting up the stairs to see her mother one last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I remember being in the apartment um, when my mom came back telling us that my grandmother had passed and come to find out she was just a few minutes too late. Uh, but she was able to sit with her, but just a few minutes too late. And I think it's always registered to me the amount of loss that women of color have had to shoulder and the lives that have been cut short. And why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that a woman in her mid-60s in the early 80s, um, was literally four months from diagnosis to death with cervical cancer. It just doesn't Mm -hmm. make sense. But it does when you think about the fact that she only felt that she could go to the doctor and talk about her pain um, if she were pregnant. But if not, then that wasn't a conversation that she had. That Mm -hmm. wasn't a doctor that she saw kind of regularly. And, And you think about that framework of how, uh, black women are supposed to be these super women are supposed to persist, um, and are, and are doing those things and kind of put their health second. And then you think about these other things that they are experiencing and not talking about and how all of those things can kind of create these perfect storms, Mm -hmm. um, that I think, we're now starting to really see the outcomes where we're saying that my grandmother's story is not an individual story. It's part of a collective mass, a growing mass, where you're seeing the premature loss of life of, of, of black and brown girls when it really shouldn't be the case, when we have the medical advancements that it shouldn't be the case. And so why is that, right? And that's kind of been the driving force behind my, my research kind of 
asking those questions. Why? Why are we not living our best lives? Mm-hmm. Um, why are our lives shorter? Um, and if we know why, what can we do about it? And maybe it's education and early testing. Maybe it's looking at the systems that we inhabit. Um, but we can't just kind of sit back and be silent anymore about these things. That's one of the very reasons why, you know, we, we're so excited to connect with you. Um, you know, not only your academic experiences, but just from that personal lens, what you're willing to bring to the table, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe to dig down a little Mm bit, could you start off by just kind of defining from your perspective the phrase historical trauma. Mm-hmm. What is it? Right. So I think when you're defining historical trauma, you need to not be caught up on the word historical, which is situating it in the past, mm-hmm. um, but really oh, contextualize it as something that is much more ongoing, that has a that is cross-temporal, that is touching the past, that's touching the present, and has the potential to touch the future. So we say historical trauma, and I think people immediately think, okay, this majorly significant a period of time that has great atrocities and is horrific, and as a result in that of that collective memory of that time, and perhaps not being able to effectively process that, address it, have some uh, kind of restitution or resolve, mm-hmm. um, that that trauma is passed down over the generations, uh, and as a result, you see. Uh, kind of a, a, a cross-temporal experience of PTSD, almost, um, okay. post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. disorder, which can come out in a variety of different ways. So it can come out uh, in the forms of elevated anxiety or stress levels or depression, for example, or maybe it's in health behaviors. Um, I'm very interested in how that connects to just actual kind of physiological changes. Um, But I push back on the idea that you can only look at it as this kind of horrific period of time that happened and and really challenge us to embrace this idea that this is something that is actually ongoing, especially if we're taking it in the context of black and brown bodies. Um, So, you know, I think I came to kind of understand the idea of something called historical trauma when I was in undergrad, and I couldn't really grasp it then. But I read a book um, titled Breaking the Psychological Chains of Slavery. Mm -hmm. And I said, what does this mean? You know, it's how many years has it been since slavery? You know, I was this you know, idealistic, um, not as knowledgeable as I thought undergraduate. (laughs) (laughs) I've since, I've since (laughs) wasn't up. Um, and it was by Neam Akbar. I think I'm saying him correctly. And he, it came and it was a powerful experience, uh, meeting him, but I still don't think I fully processed what he meant, which is this idea that if you think about kind of the abduction, the violent abduction of people from the the continent of Africa thrown onto these ships um, where they are not looked upon as human in any way, shape, or form, and they're just packed in uh, for this 
incredibly horrific journey across the Atlantic to a place that they have no idea where they're going. They have no idea what's going to happen to them. And to then get here and to be picked and prodded at, uh, you know, again, losing all semblance of humanity, stripped of language, stripped of, of power, um, and then to be brought into the system of, of slavery, uh, and then to maintain that, to be in that system of slavery for hundreds of years, only to then come out where, and you've kind of not lost all, but kind of those direct, uh, links to that, to that cultural heritage and, 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 and lineage, you know, you're, you can't trace your ancestry back in the same way that someone else could, you're then thrust into that Jim Crow era. Um, you're thrust into mass incarceration. You're thrust into uh, police brutality. Um, you are thrust into the o- over policing of by civilians now and not expect that those experiences without the space to, to really unpack them um, and a system that constantly incubates them is not going to have this kind of prov- profound effect on, uh, on, a, on, a, on a group of people mm-hmm. um, because as much as the direct links to a land have been lost, the, the, the memories of those experiences and those, the, 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 the lack of power and trauma from that is, is going to continue on. Uh, and I think the key thing about the historical trauma, right, is, or this ongoing trauma is the fact that we know that trauma then impacts the decisions that we make and impacts our well-being. Um, it has, it's, I think it has contributed to um, what we now understand as epigenetics, which is the idea of above genetics. Uh, and I think this is what's so profound to me about historical trauma, because historical trauma was allowed to incubate with the social constructions of race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those social constructions of race, I mean, it's not based on biology in any way, shape, or form, but as a function, this is my perspective, as a function of the social constructions allowing the perpetual experience of trauma to happen to certain communities, my community, you have, I think, these kind of biological manifestations of the trauma where you are seeing these health disparities mm-hmm. emerge. You're seeing these vulnerabilities to stress and other conditions emerge that really, uh, and that are emerging on a racial level, right? That should not, that should not be um, the case. Uh, and so it is this, historical trauma is this powerful thing that we don't talk about, um, but we need to talk about more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in thinking about, you know, ways, so how do you feel about the terms intergenerational trauma as mm-hmm. opposed to historical trauma? Do you feel like that's more accurate as far as, um, you know, kind of better identifying what is happening? 
Um, I mean, I think that you could combine them and say it's a historical intergenerational trauma. Okay. You know, um, <laughs> I, I think it's both. I, I don't think you want to lose the, the history part. Okay. Um, because it's not just about this trauma that was is experienced now. So uh, in a lot of my research, I talk about race-related stress or everyday experiences with um, discrimination. Uh, and I find that those, those concepts... And, and and the degree to which a person is experiencing and reporting their everyday experiences with stress or their race uh, uh, discrimination or their race-related stress maps on to their emotional eating habits, maps on to their risk for eating disorders, maps on to their risk for depression. And this is primarily uh, young adult women. Um, uh, and maps on to certain perceptions of of, of willingness to engage in risk, and that's for um, young men uh, of color. Um, so, you know, I think that to look at it only in the here and now, you're losing the whole context of how this has been growing over time. And I think that in order to address it, we need to go back to where it started, and that historical piece is that that word um, allows us or, or or reminds us that we need to go back and 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 atone and think about where this all started, right? So if we say intergenerational, it almost sounds like well something may have happened, right? And it just mm-hmm. was passed, but this is historical, right? There's something about historical, uh, the story of the world, right? Within the story of the world, this trauma happened and it was passed on generationally. And even if you can't articulate it and it's not on a conscious level, you are being affected by it in some way, Mm -hmm. psychologically, physically, um, socially, Mm-hmm. Right, that's really powerful. So it's it's a historic, it's a historical intergenerational trauma. So you would challenge and or push back on those two clustered terms being used interchangeably. Yeah, I think you got to use them both. Okay, I okay. think you got to use them if you're really gonna be if you're really gonna get at it. You got to use it both. This is not the story of something that happened to a family that didn't process it and then it continues mm-hmm. to manifest itself through the generations, right? Um, this is also not something that happened in the past and every now and then we kind of revisit it and it's a past that's specific to a group. This is a story that is talking about this is a history of our country. This mm-hmm. is a history of the world because you think about all the countries and nations that were complicit in mm-hmm. this, right? And so I think that you need that word. You, I think that you need the intergeneration, intergenerational piece. You can't, there's no separation there and it's not one or the other or either or. It is the two of them together. I found it interesting that some of the, the literature that I was reading, mm-hmm. they did use them interchangeably. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, I thank you for the perspective because I think it's an important um, point to kind of sit with. Mm-hmm. Um, and along those lines, you know, in what ways are, you know, would you say that historical trauma is being perpetuated today? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, 
I'm thinking about um, just the perceptions that we have of black women mm-hmm. um, that even now when I'm having young women complete surveys to assess whether or not they're endorsing or they're concerned about um, uh, reinforcing mammy stereotypes or um, the superwoman stereotype, that their concern over it, their tendency to endorse that is related to the experiences that they're having here and now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, it, you know, and, and those stereotypes, particularly that mammy stereotype, I mean, we can trace that all the way back, right? Um, the idea of the visibility of the black woman um, and how her body is even um, uh, considered in that discussion uh, about who, what is humanity and who's taking up space and who's not, um, we can trace that back to the way the woman's body was perceived and or not perceived to be um, starting with with slavery uh, to where we're seeing now uh, that you know you have a superstar like Serena Williams who has is having complications and really has to advocate for herself. I mean, go above and beyond to get them to pay attention because her voice, her body don't mm-hmm. appear to make, to, to trigger the same reaction as if we would presume somebody else, somebody who was not black or, or, or brown. Um, so I certainly see the ways that kind of, you know, those perceptions that, that, um, those historical perceptions are still playing out and contributing to that trauma that we are experiencing today. And then of course, uh, you know, I think that we've never really thought about, I think some, definitely some have thought about, but we haven't thought about on a grand level of the, what it was to, experience, but also be a witness to the horrific treatment of black males Mm -hmm. during slavery. And then, you know, continuing to be a witness and, and, and also in fear of that happening to you today as a black woman and looking at, um, black males, um, and the, pervasive stereotypes that came out of that period, the, the idea of, of, again, this dehumanizing experience and this widely accepted belief to not look at the body, the black and brown body as human in any way, shape or form, it percolates its ugly head still nowadays, Mm -hmm. right? There's a recent study that's super recent, a few years, that came out that suggested that um, medical students were perceiving the pain level of uh, black patients to be less than the pain level of white patients. Hmm. Um, so you're perceiving either a higher tolerance of pain or you're perceiving that they must be embellishing, right? It can't be that painful, which means that the types of medications you're prescribing, the treatment that you're following is going to shift. And you think about the trauma of experiencing chronic pain mm-hmm. and what that does, right? Um, the high risk pregnancies that black women, 
uh, tend to be having at, to such a greater degree than their white female counterparts. Uh, and is there the same amount of caution and communication around the fact that that is a possibility, right? Because we're at, we're seeing a bit of an epidemic happening when it comes to maternal health around black women. Um, and, and the rise of, um, uh, or this, uh, the steady presence of high infant mortality, particularly for, uh, black and brown babies. Um, and you, I mean, you could clearly tie that back to those, those systems that, mm-hmm. that, that came about, um, that incubated the uh, institution of, of slavery and the trauma that was experienced there still playing out here. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and those stereotypes and the ability to dismiss the black body, right, playing out over here now. Folks across identities really need to take it on mm-hmm. to raise their education and consciousness and awareness about how the historical, what the historical impact is in was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so I was just talking to someone yesterday and you think about, it, I always go back to the idea of birth of a nation, that horrific uh, white supremacist propaganda film that really set this tone for kind of the mainstream perceptive perception of the black male as this hypersexualized, not even man, but beast, honestly, mm-hmm. uncontrollable. And then you think about the, the, the idea of kind of the white fear that came from that. You think about how that ties into the racial profiling and the assumption that um, there's always a, a fine line before this man is going to go out of control, right? And so we have to police. We have to use excessive force to control them. Um, uh, that was the rallying call for the Ku Klux Klan and your the massive lynchings that then ensued. Um, and then you align that with what's going on today and the, I mean, the over-policing of black male bodies, uh, the, the killing of black male bodies is, is essentially a modern-day lynching. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that's why I also talk about the fact that that historical trauma is temporal is crossing past, present, future, because this is what we're going through right now. Right. Um, you think about the idea that the black body doesn't seem to carry importance if it's not useful mm-hmm. in some way. Right. Um, so. If this is about you're experiencing sickness, you're experiencing something that's only about you, I mean, the ways in which we respond, the research that we do, all of it kind of points to this notion of, of you know, responding to the black body only when it's of, it, it, it benefits mm-hmm. the system um, and in some way. And what, it, perhaps not being able to verbalize that, but being aware on some level that you're only as valuable as what you are currently bringing to the table, 
right? That's an outpouring of that historical trauma. So when I'm interviewing, when I have the uh, data from mothers that are talking about the stresses that they're experiencing, these are black mothers, and they're saying the idea of I have to be twice as good, twice as good. Um, there, you know, I'm stressed that I can't find the balance. I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing, I'm pushing. Even the notion of I have to be magical. I have to be a magical black girl. Um, that they know that my value is only based on what I'm producing in that moment and not even based on what I've produced previously. I don't even get, uh, you know, a pass because I was great in the, in, in uh, previous times. It's based on what I'm putting out currently, ongoingly. Um, that's still a manifestation of mm-hmm. those systems. Uh, and that's contributing to that kind of historical trauma that, 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 um, that inability has Niamh Akbar said to break those shackles of slavery. You have touched on a lot of aspects of where women and girls of color have really needed to, I don't want to say dig in, but more than others having to look at ways to stay healthy, Mm -hmm. to achieve educational goals, to Mm -hmm. achieve, um, you know, higher positionality in organizational structures that, you know, the idea that I have to do three times more. Mm -hmm. What does resilience look like? Um, And I know, like, (laughs) We could have an entire session right, right. on resilience. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in kind of a capsulated idea that, mm-hmm. you know, resilience and its relationship with historical intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. like, what does that look like? So I think particularly for the black women, because I think that the black women, though we don't, we don't think about it, um, I see the black women as storytellers as, um, keepers of the collective memory. I think that men are too, but I think that black women truly are, uh, in ways, in in the ways in which they, especially if you bring in motherhood, they're socializing their children Mm -hmm. and they're telling the stories. And so you would almost say, well, maybe they should stop telling the story, but I actually find it a source of resilience that they take on the story and they continue to tell it. Um, and they continue to instill with each generation a need for the centrality of your racial experience and for the pride, the regard. I'm using some of Seller's uh, uh, work on on racial identity development here in it, but I, I think it, it captures it. But centering the black experience, this is a centered a, cent- a central piece of who you are, um, and to not run away from it, but hanker down in it. Um, and part of hankering down in it is. Is, is knowing the past and hearing the stories. Um, so I think that that resilience, particularly for black women, is in the fact that those stories are continuing to be told and shared across generations, inner, uh, across gender. So it's, I don't think it's just that the women are telling women. I think that they're telling the men too. I think they're telling their boys or telling their girls, things along those lines. Um, and so I see that as a strength and uh, as a power. I think there's also the fact that I think that black women have been watchers as much as they have been 
participants, that the traumas that have affected black people over time often are centered in a male gaze, but they should absolutely be centered in a female gaze Mm -hmm. uh, because those things were happening to them as well. um, In addition to other things, right? Because we, we haven't really, you know, you can't talk about it without talking about the intersectionality, right. Mm -hmm. Of all of that. Um, You know, I go back to the idea that here's this messaging around this black male being this uncontrollable sexualized beast. Right. Um, And so white women are in danger and we must police them. Yet, when you think about slavery and you think about, ma- you know, um, um, uh, systematic rape, mm-hmm. right, of, uh, of a group of people, right, and even the statistics today that talks about um, sexual assault, right, mm-hmm. and how black women are reporting high levels, high, high rates of sexual assault, uh, and typically sexual he- assault is not happening kind of... Um, across racial uh, divides. So it's not these black men that are going out there, you know, but yet that whole, I mean, the idea that you have this group of people who create this image of this black man and they're the very people doing that very thing Mm -hmm. to, you know, so I keep having this image of, of, uh, birth of a Nation, right? And there's this pivotal scene where the the actors in blackface running around as this crazed black man are trying to check this woman. And we just on campus had a discussion about the rape of Reese Taylor, right? Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what happened to her. But she's a black woman being chased and forced into a car by white men, mm-hmm. right? And so the irony here, right? The 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 systems that we're up against that allows that to happen, but yet. Um, even when those stories are forgotten mainstream or not even acknowledged mainstreams, those stories are being told by those black women. They are bearing witness. You know, you think about the history of quilting, right? And the, the fact that black women would use quilts as ways to uh, create communication devices for underground railroad passage or even the corn rolls in the hair were used as signaling uh, devices. You think of a Harriet Tubman, you have all of these images of uh, black women who do not allow the story to drown them, but take the story and say, no, 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 I'm going to tell it. We're not going to walk away from this. I'm going to tell it. Um, the problem though, with that resilience is that it's emotionally overwhelming. It's emotionally, I would say it's emotionally draining. Um, and that's the balance that we're still trying to figure out, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You can't internalize it, um, but you can't be the advocate all the time, right? right? Um, So where is the kind of balance there? Um, I also think the resilience in black and brown women comes in the form of the village, right? Still the idea of the women coming together and supporting other women. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is that experience like when you're in the room? And it doesn't always happen. It's not guaranteed to happen. But that moment where you're in the room and you recognize another woman that is seeing the intersectionality of this experience and is getting you, you have that shared experience and you give that nod, that, 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 um, acknowledgement. I see you, you see me. Um, we've been amplifying each other for eons, mm-hmm. right? Um, another acts of um, resilience. Uh, I think the continued involvement with r- 
if not religion, spirituality, mm-hmm. right, are other ways that you see that resilience. Um, and uh, it's interesting because I was raised in a black Baptist church and uh, my mother is very much Christian. Uh, but uh, later in my life, I actually converted to Judaism. Um, however, being both mothers and, and, and now understanding some of the things that she went through with me and the idea that you just send your child off into the system, right? And mm-hmm. hope that the system doesn't destroy you. Like I was a mother crying hysterically when I sent my son off to kindergarten, my, both my sons to kindergarten, but I didn't think it was because they couldn't be away from me. I was crying because I knew the system I was setting them into, mm-hmm. right? And knew that I was giving up control and there was, they were, I was going to be there with them, but they were going to have to walk a lot of that on um, their own. And the importance of faith has Mm -hmm. really come out in a way for me um, that transcends the fact that at this point in time, my mother is in one religion and I'm over here in this other religion. And I think our ability to have those conversations, our ability to nurture each other's spirit and for her to keep me going and even other friends to keep me going in this space of faith, um, despite the fact that we're coming from different interpretations has a lot to do with our shared experience of being black women in the U S and the importance of that faith, right? That it will somehow, this will, I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk through, right? Something is going to get me through. Mm -hmm. Something's going to give me a sight that's allow me to navigate the situation that I'm tapping in to that those those generations past those ancestors past it's a very i don't even think it's religious it's a spiritual Mm -hmm. being it's an essence that i think it's an element of resilience we need to acknowledge it's always been there but we need to talk about it more so you know one of the, the the closing point that you know i'm connecting with folks on is As mentioned, the theme of the podcast is learning, lifting, leading social Mm -hmm. equity forum by black and brown girls and women, and which was aligned, which is aligned with the Mm -hmm. conference that took place at Shaw University in October. Um, I feel like that you've already touched on much on this last point, Mm -hmm. but is there anything else that you might want to add as far as suggestions about how black and brown girls and women can be learning, lifting, and leading to bring about social equity? I mean, I think one, you have to acknowledge your ancestors. Um, and your ancestors, it's that play on the historic. The ancestors are not necessarily the ancestors that are uh, folks that have, you're talking about hundreds of years in, in separation from mm-hmm. you. Um, I like to always talk to people about the idea of I heard the, the idiom, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants. Right. Um, And so I think what's always helped me in terms of moving towards a place of social equity is recognizing my ancestors long past, but also my ancestors that were just in these positions or just experiencing this. And maybe they have shifted up the chain a little bit more. Um, And so to keep that communication open um, and to learn from one another in um, spaces, um, to work hard at embracing collaboration and supporting one another as opposed to competing Mm -hmm. with one another, Um, 
but to also, I would say, an air of cautiousness in the sense that the impact of historical trauma has a lot to do with your frame of reference. So are you critically conscious? Where are you in your racial identity development? Not everybody is going to be in the same place Mm -hmm. as you. And so you need to be able to discern that person that is where you are right now from that person that's not there yet. And that person that's not there yet, you don't look at them and be dismissive and just say, and forget about them, but you recognize that at some point they'll be there Mm -hmm. and hopefully you'll be able to steward them through that, that process. Um, and you also acknowledge that person that has been through it and is maybe at a point that where they're talking about things or approaching things. And you're saying this person is just you know, for lack of a better term, it's crazy, you know, but thinking about what did they have to wade through to get to this point? Mm-hmm. Um, and what can I still learn from that? Um, I think that that, you know, I think we have to always be learning. I think that we do have to always be um, vigilant to, to remember that this is something that transcends past, present, and future and that includes the people in our lives and how they play out. Um, I also think that we need to recognize that as much as we see it, we're kind of the canaries in the cold mine. We need other people to see it as well. Mm-hmm. And that might mean that we have to take that step back at times and allow people to work through whatever they need to work through to, in order to get to our speed because you can't carry everyone back across the ocean. You just, you you can't, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. You can't, um, you can't carry everyone to this space. Um, we're magical, but we're not that magical. Right. Um, so you do have to look at the situation for, um, what it is. Um, and I think the last thing that I will say, um, in terms of bringing about social equity is that this is the marathon. This is not the sprint. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to pace yourself, right? Particularly when we think about the effects of chronic stress, that, that, that epigenetic experience, the, the epigenetics of stress mm-hmm. now and how, and, and how the stress that you're feeling and your mother felt could impact the stress or the, the well-being of the child that you've yet to have. Right. So you, you need to be mindful of pacing yourself, the importance of that. Um, and, um, also that you can't save someone if you're not saving yourself, right? Like the first thing in saving a drowning victim is that if you feel that they're going to pull you under, you can't keep pulling at them because you're both Mm going to drown. Right. Um, so you have no, your, um, limitations. I don't think that the system is, you know, there are the system that we, we live in, the structures that we live in, um, the country that we live in. Um, I think it feels like we're all drowning right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is definitely a push to go in and save it. And I think we do, but I also think that we need to go in, in a position where we're healthy ourselves. Um, and that we are mindful of not being pulled down with it. Um, and so it's okay to be a little bit selfish, to be Mm -hmm. a lot selfish. Historically, we've earned that. 
Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Learning, Lifting, Leading, Social Equity for and by Black and Brown Girls and Women with our guest, Dr. Buffy Longmere Avital, Associate Professor of Psychology and Coordinator of African and African American Studies at Elon University. Special thanks for this podcast go to Shaw University, Elon University, and the Raleigh Apex Branch of the NAACP for supporting this important work.